Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is my medical director, Rob Dixon. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me, Casey. I guess I have to awkwardly... Awkwardly look at the camera. Acknowledge the camera. (laughs) We're going to have several intros that sound exactly the same because we're getting used to video recording these. Again, if you want to see our ugly mugs, you can check us out on our MCHD YouTube channel. But nonetheless, let's roll into... The topic for today, and this is one, you know, I, I don't know if this one came aclo- across social media or, or maybe one of my email feeds, but uh, saw this this study, and sometimes, you know, you look at studies and you think, you know, how's that apply? It's not real life. That's not a patient-oriented outcome. That's not something that we deal with every day. You know, that's esoteric. There's tons of reasons to blow off those those random emails that you get and things that people forward you. But this is one that really has stuck for the past six, six months or so. And made me think about really every time that I'm caring for a critically ill patient, you know, are are they awake? And the title of the study is ED awareness and what they were looking at in a very general uh, overview sort of picture is when we intubate patients in the emergency department, we paralyze them, we pass the tube through the cords, we sedate them, what is the incidence of awake paralysis? And from a a personal sort of gut feeling, it's about as terrifying a situation as you could imagine, really. Yeah, and I think one of the things that brought this up to, to us as medical directors is that the crews would come to us and talk about, well, the patient was doing X, so uh, I gave them more sedation. I thought they were waking up, and we'll get into some of those myths later on of, of you know, how do you, how do you assess a patient that's paralyzed? You know, what 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 objective findings do you, can you can you see on them uh, to determine that they have adequate sedation once you paralyze them? So. To start, Casey, can we go into the kind of the, the who, what, why, when, and how of this study? Like, how did they put it together? What, what was the study design? And tell us a little bit about it. So this was uh, Papal et al. in Annals of Emergency Medicine. So if you're familiar at all with journal hierarchy, Annals is, is a big deal. So this was a, uh, a well-done, well-thought-out, well-executed study. It was prospective, observational, cohort study in a single center from June of 2019 to May of 2020, uh, where at an academic center in St. Louis, 90 to 100,000 patient volume. So big emergency department, you know, big journal. So this is one that, that obviously clears a lot of the hurdles for us for being, you know, reputable from the bat. The exposure in a cohort study, you're always looking at an exposure, and the exposure that the cohort in this study that they received was emergency department intubation and subsequent mechanical ventilation. And the primary outcome that they were looking at was the incidence of awareness with paralysis. Again, terrifying. Uh, The secondary outcome that they looked at in the study was perceived threat following extubation. And... I don't want to get into perceived threat too much, but basically it's that, it's that fear 
uh, portion of, of being awake yet not being able to move. Um, the questionnaire that they used is a questionnaire that exists in the anesthesia literature called the Bryce questionnaire. And it was basically just a standardized, almost a survey uh, questionnaire that they used in these patients after they were extubated and awake to basically ask them all a standardized set of questions. And we can link the Bryce questionnaire in the, in the show notes. You know, were you awake when you were paralyzed? It's not like they were looking at comparing lactate levels or uh, looking at uh, volume of, of fluid from a thoracentesis, a, a very objective value. The incidence of a, awakeness with paralysis is very subjective. So they used three independent reviewers to go back through the answers of the Bryce questionnaire and decide, was the patient awake when they were paralyzed or not? And the way that they answered that question, pretty straightforward, really. No, definite, and then in between was possible. And how many patients did they exclude any subset of patients from the study, Casey? So they included everyone who was intubated and mechanically ventilated greater than 18 years of age. They excluded those, obviously, who died, who had significant neurologic injury, who were transferred, and there were some in the study that were lost to attrition. That was not uh, clearly defined. I, I don't think the numbers for attrition loss were high enough to make you question, you know, the validity there. But if you died, obviously you can't answer a questionnaire. If you had significant, you know, traumatic brain injury or stroke or subarachnoid hemorrhage, you're not going to answer awake paralysis type questions very well. And if you were transferred, obviously you were lost. So there were 833 patients who were intubated during the almost one year uh, study period and 450 were excluded, which some may say, well, that's a, that's a lot excluded. But if you think about the critical illness nature of the patients that we intubate in the emergency department, a lot of those death and neuro injury is going to encompass a big percentage there. So there were 383 patients included in the final analysis. So pretty good number. And usually at this point, being the consummate abstract reader, I just skip to the answer. I'm an emergency physician, so I just want to know the answer. But, but before we get there, I guess, talk to the listeners about what do we know about this topic? When you review the literature on it, what, what, have, what have other people found on this topic of awake paralysis? Well, the impactful thing or the probably the most wow thing that I found was that, number one, we don't know a whole lot about the incidence and risk factors and really any of the nuts and bolts of awake paralysis and the incidence of this in the emergency department setting. There's not a lot of data there. And most of what we do know comes from the OR setting and from anesthesia. So does it matter, you know, from a patient centric standpoint, of course. One of the things that they noted in the paper that I thought was really powerful was that if patients, and this goes back to extrapolating from some of the OR literature, when patients experience awake paralysis, so I intubate you with sucks and atomidate, I don't give you enough atomidate or the atomidate extravasates or whatever may happen, and you get sucks and you're aware and can't move and someone's passing a, a plastic tube through your vocal cords, up to 70% of patients that experience this develop long-term psychiatric problems, primarily PTSD, which not not shocking when you couple that with not only an incidence of awake paralysis, but you've also got a, you know several day, one week, two week ICU stay on top of that, pretty impactful experience. So 
remember these for later. What else do we know? We know that the incidence of awake paralysis in the OR setting, in the anesthesia world, is about a tenth to two tenths of a percent. Really. One to two in a thousand. One to two in a thousand. So not very common. What we know from the OR that increases the risk of awake paralysis is IV anesthesia, underdosing the sedative, long-acting neuromuscular blockade. So any of those sound familiar? Yeah, check. Check. How do, how do we, what do we use to intubate uh, sedative wise? IV anesthetics. We don't use name your inhaled uh, anesthetic gas. I can't even remember any of the names. Some, there. some fluorine, but, but you can see where we're going here in, in the anesthetic setting. They know the gas is either on or it's off. So they know the patient's getting some type of anesthetic. In the IV setting, we're just trying to remember the last dose we gave and remember the half-lives of those doses. We don't want the paralysis half-life to outlive the sedation half-life. And I think, you know, just to circle back, like I think every practitioner has seen a case of this. If you practice long enough, you've either taken care of a case of this, you've received the patient from another outside facility that maybe didn't get sedation. Uh, so I think it, it's probably something that's underreported. Well, and if you also think about the recent swing in depolarizing to non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockade. If you took a poll in 2004 or 2005 when we were All training or, or fresh out of training, it was succinylcholine 95% plus. So the longer acting the neuromuscular blockade you use, the higher risk here, which makes sense. If you have an, a drug that lasts five minutes, succinylcholine, and sedatives like etomidate, you know, 10, 15 minutes, ketamine, 15, 20 minutes, 15, 20. plus minus, then your your risk of awake paralysis goes way down because your sedative outlasts your neuromuscular blocker. Whereas when you're in the rocuronium world, and if you're dosing a milligram per kilogram plus, and depending on the perfusion state of the patient, you may be 60 minutes or longer. And none of our sedatives, ketamine, etomidate, propofol, Midazolam. Right. right, which having made this change at MCHD probably three years ago, I mean, this is the riskiest time for us, right? Because we're asking our providers to change their normal practice that they've trained in and they've done for many, many years, and you put in a new agent. And I think Mia culpa, uh, at least I underestimated the risk of this when we made that change. Lots of stuff was on my radar, and you can refer back to Dr. Patrick's and I discussion and podcast about rocuronium and succinylcholine when we made the shift uh, here in the podcast. Um, but I don't, th I think I, I grossly underestimated or, or underappreciated the risk of this awake paralysis. We talked about it then we put in the protocol, a, another dose of ketamine, but um, I, d I don't think we gave it the weight maybe that, that I should have given it. I would a hundred percent agree. And the key here from a teaching standpoint, from you know my point of view, is to make sure that our practitioners, our medics, our emergency physicians, our you know the, the people out there giving these drugs every day. This is the biggest. We said this a hundred times. I'll say it a hundred and one. Taking someone's faculties away to breathe for them via sedative and paralytic is bar none to me the most impactful and the biggest and the most stressful clinical decision that we make in emergency medicine. And once we make that decision and we're using these tools, it's incumbent upon us to know how they work. And so that 
entails knowing the length of action of your drugs, your indication, your contraindications. So if we're going to give a paralytic that lasts 60 minutes plus and a sedative that lasts 15 to 20 minutes, then we've got to give that second dose of ketamine during our post-intubation packaging period. And then depending on our transport time, a third dose may even be needed if we're coming from, say, way out in Dobbin on, you know, the far west side of the county or if we're way out east and we've got a, you know, a 30-minute transport in, then we may need to consider that second dose almost mandatory because we have to know the half-life of the paralytic so that we can extend the sedative past that. So what do we know about this in the emergency department? Very little. Like, like I said before, four studies exist that, that I could find uh, with a total end value of 123. So less than 150 patients, four studies, and the questionnaires used in those studies were non-validated. So really not, of, not a lot of uniform comparable data to use. So that's why to me this this is a really important study to look at because the emergency setting is a setup for awake paralysis, IV only, underdosing. I mean, we never have accurate weights, increasing rocuronium use, probably almost primarily rocuronium now, especially here at MCHD. So nothing more patient-oriented than being awake and paralyzed. Lack of prior research, check. Patient-oriented outcome, check. This is you know, again, why this has been hanging out in the back of my mind and thinking about how we teach this going forward, you know, for the past several months. So I guess that begs the point, what, where do we go from here? How are we going to, to, you know, kind of respond to this paper and the, and the, the new data that we're finding, our new awareness or our increased awareness, I would say, of this phenomenon of awake paralysis? Well, the, the biggest thing is going to be to think about how we teach this going forward and making sure that the foundational aspects of this process are understood, and that's timing, really, right. and that we understand that timing. Um, you know, when you look at the, the questionnaire that they used, the Bryce questionnaire, number three was the question that really hit me is, oh, wow, that one that one's pretty, pretty powerful, and the question was pretty simple. Can you remember anything between loss of consciousness and waking up? If yes, then what? And so when the study investigators looked at the answers, they, the patient had to report a sensation of wakeful paralysis and have neuromuscular blockade administered. So there were some patients that were excluded because there was no neuromuscular blockade used. So if you got ketamine and no rock or no sucks, then you weren't included in this study. They did acknowledge in the study that there are some OREd differences in patient management and practice pattern that we have to address and that it's not 100% apples and apples comparison. And realistically, in the operating room, if you're going to do a craniotomy with an aneurysmal clipping or you're going to uh, repair a AAA, you don't want the patient moving at all. You want complete sedation and complete paralysis. Whereas in the emergency department setting, we want our patients to be comfortable, sedated and paralyzed, but really on all levels, probably as light as possible. Because there's plenty of evidence out there that the deeper that we get patients paralyzed and sedated, you know, the more complications that we see over long term, you know, in the ICU. So there is a little bit of difference there. The patients were questioned during that exact same hospital stay. So they didn't go home and get a, a letter in the mail. They got sedated, 
paralyzed, intubated, sent to the ICU, extubated, and then handed the handed the uh, the questionnaire while they were in the same hospitalization. And again, once they answered the questionnaire, the study investigators looked and said, "Nope, not awake and paralyzed. Yes, awake and paralyzed, or possible maybe." And I would encourage anybody out there, even if you're not a stats nerd or uh, you know somebody that's hung up on odds ratio, sensitivity, specificities, a journal, a journal reader. Go to the appendix of this study and read the responses because they actually included the questionnaire responses in the manuscript and they were very detailed. And when you look at them, it's pretty harrowing, uh, some of the things that some of the patients said. And when you read them, you'll be able to realize and you can look and see, did they say yes or maybe or no to, to each patient? Mm-hmm. And it's pretty easy to see, uh, yeah. I'd have called that awake paralysis for sure. And when I skimmed through, I'm like, yeah, I agree with every every uh, point here. And then the interclass correlation between the reviewers was uh, very, very good agreement, 0.72 for that correlation coefficient, which basically that means, means about three quarters of the time, if I thought it was awake paralysis, you thought it was awake paralysis. And it was, and I, to be honest, I would almost say looking at that, right. I, I bet you I would agree even more. They had 383 patients. 10 of 383 were deemed definite or possible awake and paralyzed. So 2.6%. 70% of those patients got rock versus only 31% of the other 373. So I'll say that one more time. In the group that were awake, well over half, 70% got rockeronium. Whereas the other 373 that were deemed not awake and paralyzed, less than a third of those got rock. So there's your there's your long-acting neuromuscular blockade right. being a risk factor. So the odds ratio for rock and awake paralysis was 5.1. So pretty pretty impressive pretty there. Pretty impressive. Can we circle back to one of the old podcasts, and I'll put you on the spot sure. here, about how do I, as the practitioner, I've intubated the patient, and I'm packaging up, and I'm headed to the hospital. How do I know when my, what are some some clues that my sedation may be wearing off? Is it tearing? I mean, we hear tearing all the time, but you have to remember, you can listen back to that podcast. We kind of go on and on, right? It, that you, what do you see with ketamine, which is our number one sedative of choice for post in, for intubation and uh, post-intubation sedation, but you see increased tearing, increased bronchorrhea, increased secretions. So tearing, check a myth. I would say that would not be my guiding factor. Realistically, you know, they're not going to buck the tube. They're not going to reach and grab. They're paralyzed. paralyzed, So remember that part. You look for, from my standpoint, you look for those, those hemodynamic changes are the biggest. And while they can't necessarily move, you're going to see tachycardia and tachycardia is going to be the big one. You know, they're, they, you know, can they breathe over the vent? Not really. They're paralyzed. Uh, so tachycardia is the big one. Even if you saw diaphoresis would be another one. Hypertension. Hypertension. All so those, those physiologic parameters for our listeners out there, not tearing, I think is important to remember. And then to go back as, a, as medical directors, right, we set up to ensure, ensure a, a quality process that ensures that once you do, you QA and intubation, that you see that post-dose of paralysis given. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And it's got to be required in it's the protocol. It's got to be required. It can't be, it can't be as needed, right? You've got a 60-minute drug. You change over to the doctor at the hospital, and you're giving them all this information. They may or may not know the time delta between when you intubated the patient and when the patient arrives and they're assuming care of the patient. And I would go as far as to say knowing that time delta and reporting that time delta is a vital part of changing over an intubated, paralyzed patient. In other words... Our transport time was 20 minutes. We intubated on the scene with ketamine and rock. We gave a second dose of ketamine when we left the parking lot. It was a 20-minute ride in, so our last ketamine dose was 20 minutes ago. Their rocuronium dose was 30 minutes ago, or something like that. Being very, very, very meticulous and measured about knowing when your paralytic was given, when each of your sedative doses were given, and then making sure you report that because in the chaos of a handover, how many things are you sorting through as the, as the receiving emergency physician? Maybe the nurse is in the room and not the physician yet. So it's really important from the medic standpoint that you really get that point across to the receiving folk. And, and we've seen, both of us have seen in many, many healthcare settings, uh, the typical is to order like a continuous drip once the patient's there and the physician may not think to give a short act or a, another dose of sedative while we're waiting on the, the uh, pharmacy to mix this up, while the staff is tending to a bunch of other housekeeping things and going to get it from the PIXIS. It doesn't, it's just, it doesn't happen in a nanosecond. So there is a big time lag there between when a patient arrives and when a, a continuous you know, propofol drip or, or uh, Versed drip or some other continuous sedative is started on the patient. And realistically, it's probably changed reading this study and thinking through this, thinking through how we write our protocols, how we probably didn't educate as forcefully on this as we could have. All those things taken together have made me really conscious of that when I, when I receive patients in my day job practicing emergency medicine as well. In other words, just like you said, I'm going to go click the propofol drip. I'll probably click it when I'm standing there in the, in the, uh, you know, in the patient chart. But the propofol drip isn't immediate. So it's more important for me to verbally say, hey, can we get a dose of Versed? Can we get a dose of ketamine? I need 10 of Versed. I need, you know, 70 of ketamine, whatever it is, because something needs to be fairly immediate so I can continue my bridge as the emergency physician to whenever that continuous drip comes into play. Let's, let's wrap up with a little bit of kind of final points on the study. You know, again, they found a 2.6, 3% rate of awake paralysis in this study. Going back to the numbers that I ask everybody to remember, what's the rate in the OR? 0. 0.1 to 0.2%. So three times the rate of awake paralysis in the ED, uh, as opposed to what yeah, you it's, see. It's, it's, you can make it simple. I'm a simple person. It's essentially two to three in a thousand versus two to three in a hundred. If you, if you look at the confidence intervals of the study. I mean, just huge. And even if you calculated just the definite and you took out the possible paralyzed, you still had a rate of 1.8%. That's still markedly higher than what we see in the OR. So the strengths of the study, novel question, ED applicable, patient-oriented outcomes. So really, really, really impactful there. You know, single, single center always makes you say, well, is this going to apply across practice environments? I'm not sure that a single center environment here is that big of a negative. And reading the study and looking at how they handle these percentages and the numbers, 
kudos to the authors. They were very, very careful as to not overestimate the findings. I would almost say that they went so far as to underplay it. They really, anything that was possible or maybe they tended to jack it down a notch as opposed to overestimate what they what they found. And they even said in the study these are exploratory and hypothesis generating only. I would agree there, but there's enough concern for me to say, you know, this is one where we really need to pay extra attention. Yeah, when you look at any intervention, guys, you have to look at what is the what is the most beneficial for the patients. Here we have, you know, one to two in a hundred patients uh, with awake paralysis. What's the downfall of one extra dose of sedative or a little bit more sedative, right? Very, very little in the intubated, paralyzed, properly confirmed tracheal tube. Very little. So just to to wrap it up with the sort of the meat and the, the heavy hitter portion of this, put the data away. I'm going to put some things in quotes here in my notes because these were some of the answers that came out of some of the surveys. I remember the breathing tube going in. I remember them putting the breathing tube down, but I could not move. It was terrible and traumatic. I was panicking inside. I remember waking up with someone pulling my injured leg. I tried not to move, but I could not. And in that one, the ED records noted what? Quote, spike in BP, unquote. I'll bet that your blood pressure would spike if you were awake, paralyzed, and someone was reducing your angulated femur fracture. For a minute, the patient experienced paralysis in which she couldn't move anything, including her eyes. When I woke up, I could not move, but I could hear people talking about putting a camera down to look in my lungs. So she must have heard about the, the bronchoscopy that was getting ready to happen or the uh, fiber optic intubation. I had a breathing tube in my throat. I tried to move but I, and talk, but I could not. I mean, all those together just throw out the numbers. We don't want our patients to experience that. That's poor form when the medicine that we have to prevent that is sitting on all of our shelves and all of our bags, whether we're in the truck, whether we're in the emergency department. This is a a great review, Casey. And I think one of the more impactful of the many impactful episodes that you have out there. So I think that this can be practice changing for, for many of our providers out there. Yeah. And we, I mean, what do we intubate here at MCHD? 150 a year. So at the study rate of awake paralysis, that means we are transporting five patients a year who are awake after we paralyze them. That cannot be the case. And I, I, I would venture that we do a better job of giving that second dose of paralysis than most ED physicians and ED practitioners do just because we're so regimented with the way that we perform our DSI and the way that we go from rule of 15s and pre-oxygenation and positioning right into VL with the bougie rocuronium administration and then into our vent calculations and our post intubation sort of packaging housekeeping yeah. but there's never too much of this discussion so that's really you know the big risk factor here that we saw was that long-acting neuromuscular blockade not knowing the patient's weight and using IV sedatives well we're uh, a big cesspool of risk factor there so don't forget the post intubation ketamine and dose it properly, know the length of action of your ketamine, know the length of action of your paralytic, and make sure that you're accounting for that, depending on how long your extrication is, where your transport's from, and then when you get to the ED, make sure that you're given a good report with accurate times, and if you have to err, err on the side of caution, you know. 
Uh, make, make sure that you're underestimating in, instead of overestimating because we don't want patients to say things like I had a breathing tube in my throat, tried to move and talk, but could not. We don't want that happening to the patients that we transport. So anything you want to add? No, that sums it up. Thank you. Thanks for this one, Casey. This is a good one. And for all the listeners out there, whether you're listening on YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcast, please leave us a review or a like wherever you listen. If you have ideas for future podcasts, questions, concerns, want to make fun of us, any of those things, shoot us an email at podcast at mchd-tx.org. Thanks, everybody, as always, for listening. We're climbing close to half a million listens, so we really appreciate everybody out there that takes time to listen to us and give us good feedback. And as always, we'll talk to you again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.